Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. and Chuck Wally over on our Twitter tweet chat with the hashtag TCK. Tonight we have Dr. Charles Parker. We are very excited. Um, he is a physician, a clinical neuroscientist, a writer. His blog on um, Core Psych blog is just outstanding. His new book, The New ADHD uh, Med Rules, is incredible. And there are a lot of parents that are very confused, and Dr. Parker is here right now, and he's going to help us out. Dr. Parker, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for asking me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, we have a lot to go over. <clears throat> you know, I wanted to start off by discussing the confusion um, that surrounds the diagnosis. So we'll talk about the diagnosis, the subgroups. Um, yeah, I'd like to go into, obviously, the medications. And, you know, we'll we'll see if we can fit in a little bit of endocrine and, um, you know, targeting treatments, too. So um, why don't we start off with discussing the problem with diagnosis? Because, you know, ADHD is thrown around very easily. And, um, you know, parents are very confused. You call it the blue tie diagnosis. The DSM-4 is descriptive. It's very confusing. Um, it's not really a great tool for this disorder. So, you know, how is it harming more than helping? And, you know, how can parents um, feel reassured that they're getting the right diagnosis? Well, one of the key things that we really need to do as we begin to think about the larger picture of what's really going on is that attention deficit is, is really more than just a superficial appearance description kind of diagnosis. It's a complexity of a variety of issues, uh, all of which contribute to an appearance of focus and attention, but really the underlying issue, which uh, I'm so grateful for, having been exposed to a number of people who really talk about function and brain function. And I think whenever we start asking questions in the office, when the parents are trying to describe what's going on, very often they're talking about brain function without actually being conscious that function is the issue. And what happens is we start using descriptive terms like they're hyperactive, inattentive, or combined, but we really don't ask the individual patient, child or adult, 
how their brain is actually functioning. And that executive function is what we need to target. Right, and we're going to go into that, the prefrontal uh, frontal cortex dysfunction. Um, but, you know, I wanted to discuss also the confusion because, you know, there are a lot of kids that can sit and watch movie after movie. They can play their video games, you know, for hours. Um, and parents assume because they can do this that they're able to focus and they don't have ADHD. And, you know, the more I listen to your um, your videos, which are outstanding, I've been posting them um, all month, um, you know, the more it sounds dimensional to me with a lot of different subgroups. So, um, you know, can you just explain to parents how a child can sit and do a task or play with a certain toy for hours but still have ADHD? Well, Marianne, it really is dimensional, and it really is dynamic. I think one of the key things that people overlook, and uh, even at the CHAD meeting, if people didn't quite say this, Dr. Barkley did bring it up uh, at the CHAD meeting in Florida a couple weeks ago, but the issue is the relevance of time. So what happens is, and why do I bring up the relevance of time? Because it sounds deep when you say it, but it's really pretty simple because time is related to the context of reality. What is the reality that the child is actually or the adult is actually working with? One important point that so many overlook is the fact that ADHD is aggravated by specific changes, increased variables, decreased structure, with no specific entertaining focus. So if a person has any one or all three of those problems, they could be significantly compromised in their ability to focus because the structure and the reality has changed. Now, this is, stands in strong contradistinction to the fact that some people think that attention deficit disorder is a 24-7 diagnosis, that it exists all day, every day, 24-7, seven days a week. And, in fact, that is absolutely not the case. It's absolutely not the case. And uh, what happens is parents then wind up being confused because they think, well, if it's not 24-7, if it isn't all day every day, well, maybe it's not attention deficit disorder. Maybe it's something else. I really don't know what it is, but it's not attention deficit disorder. Interestingly, many psychologists come up with the same conclusion. They're doing testing, and they realize that on some tests the person does very well. On other tests the person is less focused, and they have a confusion. It seems to me, I'd say fully 80% of the tests we see uh, coming into the office, the psychologist doing the testing is, well, I'm not sure. I can't really hang my hat on it because, in fact, from a diagnostic and statistical manual, this person does not meet criteria for the 24-hour, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours, um, criteria. In fact, it exists over here but doesn't exist over here. Well, it really has to do with the changes in reality. All right, and I think it's the new parents that are, are more confused because, you know, they do expect to have that, you know, very rigid diagnosis. I think parents, as they're traveling this road, they really learn that, whereas with all these neurobiological disorders, that they wax and wane. And, um, you know, we'll go into later, uh, we'll discuss later about the neurotransmitters and how variable that is also. Um, so let's let's talk about the prefrontal cortex dysfunction because um, you have three subtypes or subgroups, and you know it's really interesting and it's really important I think for parents to pay attention and to listen to this because it explains a lot of the confusion. So um, the first one that you have is acting without thinking, which looks like hyperactivity. So let's let's start with number one. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And before we even do that, let me set the picture just a little more clearly in terms of the overview, and that is if the mind is trying to adjust to changing reality, one of the things that sets us human beings apart from dogs and cats and cows is that we can see a problem and do something about it, and we can retain what we did yesterday with a working memory and do an improvement on it the next day. It's one of the reasons we have heat and air conditioning and, and are protected from the elements is because we see a problem and we fix it and we carry that improvement down the road. What happens with ADD and different subsets in the three that we're going to discuss is a desynchronization between thinking and acting. And what I mean by desynchronization, well, if your brain is working right and people who have ADD do have their brain work well in certain respects, here's the problem, let me fix it. I'm interested in that. I love doing that. I'll get that done. 
so they don't have a problem there. Where they have a problem is when they are having real difficulty with working memory, and three different uh, subsets of activities can occur. The main one, the one that you just asked me about, is the separation of acting and thinking in that the person acts without thinking. So acting without thinking becomes a functional diagnostic tool as opposed to hyperactivity, which is more descriptive and does not have the uh, relationship between changing reality. So if a person is acting without thinking, what is the context of why they're acting without thinking? It probably has something to do with a change in structure. So we see with kids, for example, they are doing well at school, surprisingly, and they come home to much less structure and deteriorate upon walking off the bus. Well, the structure has changed. So they may have been suffering with problems in the structure of school, but they're aggravated. And there's a desynchronization between acting and thinking when they walk off of the bus. That transitional period is very difficult for these kids. You know, and we all know about it, Marianne. It's, it's interesting because if you talk to anybody who's interested in ADD, they say, well, of course, people have difficulty with transitions. Well, we know about it, but we haven't really quite locked it down as a contextual problem and, and as, as clearly relevant as, as we're really trying to lock it down here as relevant for ADD. I mean, it's like, yeah, well, you could say one, one point of uh, view would be everybody has problems with transition. Yeah, but people right. who have ADD don't get past the problems. They get stuck in that transition. They can't get out of it. Right. And, you know, you, you talk about the most frequent subgroup, which is the most interesting to me, uh, which is the thinking, thinking, thinking without acting. And, um, you know, this one is just so important because it, it, this one really brings into play why there can be so much misdiagnosis and so much com comorbidity. Because I often wonder, um, you know, how much is comorbidity and how much is just subgroups or, you know, dimensional aspects to disorders. So, you know, take your time and, and explain about um, this thinking, thinking, thinking. Well, let me give you a little background on this, Marianne. I, I got onto this in 96, so it's been a long time that I've been recognizing it. And, I, and like many of these things that I'm talking to you about tonight, they came from patients who came back and said, well, that's not what it is for me. This is what it is, and this is what I've experienced. And so back in 96, I uh, began to notice a, a predominant drug interaction between Prozac and Adderall, we can talk about that later, but what happened is they had an increased profusion of thinking with worries and upset. So they were actually coming out the top of the therapeutic window and thinking too much. Well, I began to recognize that some people were actually presenting in the office as brand-new patients with an abundance of thinking, and that if the meds were titrated correctly and carefully, that you could significantly impact their their over overabundance of thinking that they're uh, you know that unbalanced thinking 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 without acting. I, I was hesitating for a moment. I I call it unmanageable cognitive abundance. It's a little too much of a mouthful. But so what happens is a person can get stuck many ways in the situation of thinking without acting. Many people have it happen all the time, and it's so natural they don't have a sense of conflict about it. It's like my brain is running all the time, but it's not an encumbrance for me. Others, it runs so frequently, they're out of control, and they cannot make a decision under any circumstance. And this is in strong contradistinction to OCD. This is just a plain old simple abundance of thinking and an inability to turn the mind off. So a person doesn't have to be obsessional about a certain topic or compulsive about a certain behavior. Uh, they just are, they've kind of run amok in their mind, but it's a private muck, and no one mm -hmm. really knows about it, and there's a great deal of shame behind it. And, and they aren't moving uh, forward developmentally as fast as they should because they're encumbered by all these things that they're thinking about all the time and, can't, and actually can't decide. And there's you know, another I, I, subset to that thinking too much, and that's the one that flips it out the other way. And this is these people very frequently can be 
can suffer from ADHD but be uh, significantly good managers because in the context of control and work, when they can control the structure, they cut out the variables because they don't want to hear anybody contribute because if they have another contribution, they're going to have to think about it, and they wind up being micromanagers, cutting out conversation, and they're kind of vertical micromanagers. They just don't want to hear anything from anybody. And then they go home and ask their spouse, what should we do tonight? I have no idea what to do at home because the home is not structured. Right. So you can see that happen. It just happens all the time when you think about it. It just we see it. We see it every day. And actually, what you're talking about now is the the third subtype that you're talking about. And you know, you talk about how it can appear to people to be a character defect um, yeah. because they really are very cut and dry. And I'm the boss, and this is how we're doing it. Um, you know, and and I, I think people take that as somebody just being very. Um, obnoxious and somebody being very, um, you know, um, you know, taking over, but really it's part of the disorder that they have. Their prefrontal cortex is not working well, and what they're trying to do in that situation is to highly dramatically compensate for unmanageable cognitive abundance, but they don't even want to go there, so they're going to make a decision to actually cut out the anxiety. Anxiolytic is what we call it. It, it lyses, it cuts out the anxiety by premature decisions so their decisions are uh timing timed imperfectly because they're making them preemptively before anyone can ever get with and, and as a as a group participant then they wind up having to control the group because the thoughts come up and they have to get the thoughts out of their mind and you know i wanted to just step back a little bit about the cognitive abundance because you were talking about um you know, how it can appear to be OCD, but, you know, I would assume that it doesn't have the rituals, so it's not a ritualistic type of an OCD. But, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, like mental OCD, um, mental compulsions. Mm-hmm. Would yes. that account for it? It sounds very. It sounds really that it would be a better um, diagnosis for it, for a lot of these kids from what parents tell me that the kids are going through. Well, I think what people are trying to do is take the outdated diagnostic coding and put it over what they see. But when you really get right down to it, the person is not necessarily obsessional. They just have unmanageable cognitive abundance. Uh, You'll get a kick out of this story. I mean, I was, I forget what year it was. It was probably in somewhere uh, 1999, 2000, something like that. I was at a very interesting OCD, international OCD conference, get this, in Madeira, off the coast of Spain, you know, it was off the uh, Portugal, Spain. It was an island in, uh, on the Atlantic there, and and uh, you know the room was filled with international experts on OCD, and everybody was asking, you know, talking about OCD, and one of the people there had written a very excellent paper on the OCD spectrum disorder, and um, I, I honestly can't remember the paper. It's been a long time since I've read it, but there were probably something like 15, 20 subsets of OCD disorder that were in this quote-unquote spectrum of uh, thinking that this very um, smart guy had put together. And uh, so, but of course, by that time, I'd already been really very much involved with the OCD thinking and the unmanageable cognitive abundance thinking. And so I raised my hand. In the room, I mean, there were probably, I don't know, three, 400 people in there. And I said, you know, has anybody ever thought of the relevance here of attention deficit disorder to this unmanageable cognitive abundance? And you could hear a pin drop. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh, no, this is not. this was not on the radar. We shouldn't be actually talking about this because... The the issue there is that this uh, uh, meeting was funded by a company that uh, uh, had an antidepressant, and the antidepressant was a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And and the person who was running the meeting, who was a uh, esteemed child psychiatrist from a, a preeminent medical school, which I won't drop the name on, uh, basically uh, quite disrespectfully shut me up. 
and mm-hmm. said, you know, we shouldn't be speculating about these things. We should not be uh, talking about these things without any evidence. Are there any papers on this? Well, I said, you know, my, my retort was I was simply trying to start a conversation. I think it's a real issue and we should we should address it. Well, and, if there had been 300 parents sitting in the room instead of, um, you know, whoever was there, you would have had applause because what the parents are saying is that these diagnoses don't fit. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and they're seeing what you're saying. So, um, you know, the OCD you know, is a spectrum. I mean, all of the, even bipolar, I've had um, Dr. Dmitry Popolis on several times. Everything is very dimensional. And, you know, yeah. parents have to, we tell them all the time, don't get hung up on the label. You don't treat the label, you yeah. don't. You know, look at the child as a label. Um, but if there's one thing that I've really learned in um, doing this show is that anxiety plays a key role in all of these disorders. Yes. Um, it almost seems to be the core of, you know, or even autism, you know, everything. So how how is uh, is anxiety so easily dismissed with since we're talking with ADHD? I would imagine it has a huge impact on it. Well, I think... I think it's dismissed because people don't know what to do with it, to tell you the truth. I think that since we don't have a tool that's uniformly agreed upon as effective and people don't see the comorbidity existing between the serotonergically responsive anxiety and the dopaminergically responsive anxiety, they can't sort them out. And since anxiety then, and since they're trying to, you know, uh, use the principle of uh you know, using one one product for all anxiety, it's just not working. So then people are loath to actually identify it because, you know, what do you do with it? I mean, to use it right now the way the, the uh, uh, professional world is working, there's kind of a mood disorder anxiety and there's a, a depressively related anxiety, uh, which is serotonergically responsive. And those are the only anxieties that exist. I mean, that's what's going on. So... People are loath to make a diagnosis of anxiety because they really don't know which neurotransmitter system is involved. And we can talk later, but there are more neurotransmitter systems involved than just dopamine and serotonin. And exactly. what happens? Is, yeah. And so, if you th- if you know that, then you're much more into biomedical evidence as opposed to just trying to look at it from the outside, take a guess, and take a shot at it. And, you know, the other problem is that, especially with teens, I mean, but, you know, for my daughters, it was much younger, like nine, um, the endocrine system plays a huge role. And, you know, it, that is an area where most, you know, doctors don't recommend an endocrine workup. And, you know, it affects the um, the immune system. But, you know, getting back to the anxiety, I think one of the problems is, you know, as you were just talking um, about, and we're going to return to it, about, you know, giving Prozac um, and how it increased the thinking. And one of the problems is that I think that a lot of the um, children are given, um, you know, antidepressants for to control the anxiety because they don't want to give the more addictive type of, um, um, you know, anti-anxiety mm-hmm. medication. Yeah, that's true. And it just it it just it becomes a vicious cycle. Um, you know, I, I I've even heard of children who it's become so severe that they have auditory hallucinations because Absolutely. they can't turn off the thinking. Absolutely, no question about it. Yeah, I get I get kind of excited about that, Marianne, because we see it. It's it's really if people just would get their mind turned on to what we're talking about here, right. the the suffering of so many people would be changed dramatically. I mean, what I the way I break that whole down that whole thing down, and and by the way, before I get into it clinically, let me just tell you, we've seen on really hundreds of brain scans. If you really want to definitively take it down, and I'm not recommending brain scans for everyone by any by any mm-hmm. means. It's an expensive procedure, but uh, having worked with Eamon and opened the D.C. office, and I really had an opportunity to look at a lot of brains. And when you look at a lot of brains and see the person that's carrying the brain, it changes your thinking into a functional assessment thinking. But uh, we've seen a lot of people that would come in who would be on antidepressants. And with an antidepressant, the prefrontal cortex drops out considerably as the ADHD, the working memory, is significantly compromised. So if they already have a problem with ADD or ADHD and they take a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, there's this phenomenon I call the basal ganglion seesaw. So what happens is 
if you pull uh, the serotonin up on the one side of the seesaw, the dopamine sits on the other side of the seesaw, and it is consequently pulled down. So what happens is if a person is, and this is overly simplistically stated, but, but just for purposes of discussion to, to grasp mm-hmm. the picture, it's what we see clinically all the time, is the serotonin goes up, pulls the serotonin up, the dopamine comes down, and the person can get, they can hallucinate, they can become psychotic, throw chairs, become completely crazy because the prefrontal cortex, which was compromised already, is now gone out the window. The judgment, the dampening effect, of, and the timing is gone. And uh, it can go, it can be a serious situation like that, or it can be just plain old, what what I've come to call Prozac stupid. A person, Prozac is notorious for accumulating in the brain. It's lipophilically stored in, in the brain. Uh, lipophilically is in the brain fat. So you can accumulate Prozac just as, a, as, as one, uh, one product uh, just because it doesn't, it doesn't uh, uh, because, just because it accumulates and doesn't uh, well, pass I think out. That's why, yeah, and that's why I think a lot of the kids wind up on the medication cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, because it makes sense what you're saying, and I really hope the parents are paying attention. And I am not anti-medication. Medication yeah. saves yeah, lives. I'm, I'm not mental either, illness, I'm... Yeah, yeah, mental illness is, could be a fatal disease. What, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes when you give the serotonin, it dysregulates the dopamine, so you give a little something for the dopamine, and then there's the norepinephrine. So it becomes a vicious cycle of, of medication cocktail. So, you know, to go back to, you know, I call it, you know, throwing darts at butterflies. And, um, <laughs> you know, I've had Dr. Henslin on, and we, we discussed um, just this about using um, neuroimaging to better target treatments for people. But my, I didn't ask him, so I'm so glad you're here, because um, my question is with the, with the way neurotransmitters fluctuate during the day, um, the levels, how could you really get an accurate reading with neuroimaging anyway? Is it pretty effective? Yes, it is, really. Both neuroimaging and uh, neurotransmitter testing, they, they really stay pretty much the same way uh, over, over periods of time. In other words, you, you can make a specific, uh, uh, inter- you can take a, a specific intervention and do something about the, the uh, deterioration in brain function and see an improvement, but uh, in terms of when you do it during the day, uh, there really isn't a change. It has a, a great uniformity with it. And, uh, but on the other hand, having said that, you can significantly add a psychiatrist come up and see me when I was in D.C. from um, Atlanta, very interesting guy who's interested in brain scans. We looked at his brain. It was pretty well pockmarked, shot up, looked like somebody had beat, beat his brain with a ball-peen hammer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he had a number of problems, one of which was the fact that because he was such a good psychopharmacologist, his colleagues in Atlanta asked him what they should give him for medication. And I said, listen, we're not going to do that. You know, we're going to work together and figure this out, but I'm going to make very specific recommendations because we're going to achieve some real clear target recognition and go after it. Well, we changed his medications around. He had a drug-drug interaction. He needed some other adjustments. We didn't do it all just by the brain scans. The brain scans helped a great deal. But he was out in uh, California about three or four weeks later. It wasn't much longer than that. And he saw Dr. Amon out there, and Amon said, why don't we just take a look at your brain? You're out here. Why don't you hop in the machine and take another picture? And his brain had, had changed dramatically with the nutritional supplements, the mix of medications, the neurotransmitter precursors, the variety of interventions that have been done as opposed to just doing um, a single medication. So the point is it can change. The brain can change rather quickly, but the bottom line is in terms of looking at this as evidence, they're they're very accurate biomarkers. I mean, let's back up. It's not 100% because they are biomarkers. SPECT imaging is really a biomarker. One of the problems with SPECT imaging is that people can form conclusions about what to do from the patterns 
without really understanding the molecular and cellular physiology that's causing the pattern in the first place. So to say, you know, one of one of my uh, uh, phrases that I really don't like that Eamon has continued to use is ring of fire. I think it's uh, not a scientific term and, and certainly earns him considerable en- enmity with his colleagues. Uh, we didn't use it when I was in D.C. because, I mean, we had Georgetown across the river, GW there, and, and Johns Hopkins. I didn't want to be telling people I was turning out reports with Ring of Fire. And uh, But the, the diffuse cortical hypermetabolism that you saw, hyperperfusion, uh, was uh, very clearly related to a number of things. It isn't just bipolar illness. You can't take a conclusion from, from a, a hot brain and just say that they're bipolar. That's taking a metabolic assessment and turning it into, a, again, a, an appearance diagnosis. So in that particular case, the brain scan becomes a tool for an appearance diagnosis when you still haven't gone to the molecular and cellular physiology. Right. So brain scans are, are very, very useful. I'm not against them, I, but I don't think they're the sine qua non. I think they're a good tool in the tool belt. And, and it is interesting. I mean, my daughter's had it in MRIs, CAT scans, uh, PET scans, everything. It is it is amazing what, what they find. And, you know, parents, we tell them all the time, you, you need to understand the basal ganglia and you need to know what the amygdala is also. Um, you know, there's a lot going on there that's causing the problems. But I want to go back to something that you said in one of your videos um, struck me. You said that cognitive abundance makes it worse um, when a child is, is gifted or very bright. Yeah, yeah. It, that's my. You know, it's it's funny because I I tell so many people. I probably say this once a day. If you were stupid, you'd be in better shape. <laughs> because what happens is a bright person is sifting through more variables because their perceptions are more acute and they're thinking about more things, and their curiosity is so high. They're struggling with the integration process of pulling all that into a working memory grid. And as a result, that intelligence does seem to stand in the way of the sorting process. And if they, you know, if they didn't have so many variables, it would be easier to sort out. Yeah, we see that all the time. So I want to move on to really what's the fourth um from the way I was reading it, um, the, the fourth subgroup um, that you have. And then we want to move on to the meds. We've got a lot of questions going on over on the chat room. So um, avoidance of self, avoidance of close relationship, avoidance of people in general, which may, to some, look like agoraphobia, social phobia, social anxiety. Um, what is this? What, what subgroup is this? Well, indeed, what's going on there is... Uh, It's another form. The first one's acting without thinking. The second one's thinking, thinking, thinking without acting. And this is an attempt unconsciously, pre-consciously, to deal with those conflicts by by managing it through the the action of I'm not going to think, I'm not going to act, I'm just not going to deal with it. And the reason I break it down from intimate relationships to groups to projects is because each one of those contexts does present a different reality with different sorts of variables. And if we can then target what the actual problem is with the prefrontal cortex, and we can get to know that individual better, then we can really see if if the medications we're using are the interventions. I mean, we use neurofeedback. We use supplements. I mean, we don't just use medications, but the issue is, Whatever the interventions are, if we're going to approach it from a biologic point of view, our targets are more precise. One of the things that happens with, you'll get a kick out of this because you do this all the time, but one of the things that I think is so relevant to procrastination is even procrastination itself can be broken down considerably. And I, I, break, every, I break procrastination down with every new interview into four different subsets with two two of them in two different contexts. So a person can have a problem with procrastination starting and finishing, starting or finishing or both, and they can have a problem with procrastination in the structure of school or in the structure of work or in the structure of home. 
interestingly, some people uh, actually have more procrastination at home and no procrastination at work. Right. And uh, and because what they're doing is they're struggling with different realities and different different abilities to manage the realities in those different contexts. And once you know all that stuff, it's it's very interesting. The person's really engaged with you in the process of what are we really trying to fix on a functional level so I can get my brain to work right. And then we can then we can use whatever intervention system more precisely. Right. Well, now that we know um, all of the different variables, all of the different subgroups, it makes sense that not one treatment is going to work. Stimulants is not going to be the answer for everybody. SSRIs are not going to be the answer for everybody. And that's where we really get into um, the difficulties with our children. So I want to talk about how, when you have all these different subgroups, um, and oftentimes people think because it's ADHD that you just treat it with a stimulant. And there are many other options. So I'd like to first discuss what are, you just mentioned the biofeedback, what are some of the other options, including supplements. And um, we have a lot of questions about the uh, medications because, you know, you've said in one of your videos that only about 20% of um, people with ADHD really show with impulsivity. So, um, you know, stimulants may not be the answer for everybody. So what is science telling us about the ADH medications? I mean, you literally wrote the book. Well, let's let's hit just the medications real quickly. If we don't pay attention to the biologic variables, the medications aren't going to work correctly. And so it's not so much medications, and I think the uh, big pharma has gotten a tremendous rap because people are using the medications so capriciously it looks like the medications when many of the side effects and many of the problems are completely predictable. So, in fact, I just did a blog post this morning on, on why we have blamed and, and given Big Pharma a bum rap by not looking at some of the variables and how we as, as a culture, as a society, have been thinking imprecisely about these things and blaming the pharmaceutical companies when really we just haven't been looking at the use of the medication correctly. I mean, I love your thing of throwing darts at butterflies. I mean, you know, the medications are sharp, but you do have to know what the target is. So, but there are varieties well, you know of targets. Let's go through a few vocabulary words, because I think you're going to use a few words, and I just want to make sure that the listeners understand what you're referring to, because it's important. Okay. Um, you use the word transference, therapeutic window, titration, and duration of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So important for, for, for anyone using these medications to understand. So, um, you know, I think one of the questions parents have is, okay, so now they have the short acting, they have the extended release. Um, you know, how do parents know um, what medications? I mean, they'll go to, to, the, to a psychiatrist, they'll sit down for 25 minutes and go home with a prescription. Um, you know, how can they be more proactive in seeking the right treatment? Well, first of all, they one of the reasons I wrote the book is I wrote the book for the public, and the last chapter is really how the public can then work better with their physicians. So it's really kind of going in the back door of the physician's office by getting the public to really become aware of what they're dealing with because in a short, it's 147 pages, you can really see what some of the variables are, and if you know what the variables are, the people that have, that work with me now, I've read the book, they're like, well, and they use terms like duration of effectiveness. I'll give you a quick example. So many people don't even ask the question, when did you take it? When did it quit working? Now, we all know in our hearts that stimulant medications only work for a portion of the day. I mean, there are some exceptions where they work almost the whole day, like Daytrona, for example. But but most of the stimulant medications have a specific, what they call, half-life, which means that they work for a certain period of time, like immediate-release Ritalin is like four to five hours. Now, what and Vyvanse, on the other hand, is 12, sometimes 14 hours. The bottom line is if you don't have a precise target regarding the duration of effectiveness, then neither the patient nor the practitioner can know whether the medication is adequately adjusted. 
that is such a key point. And I can when I do my initial interview, I, somebody says, "Hey, yeah, I got ADD. I've been on medication for ten years." I say, "Well, when do you take it? And when does it quit?" And like, "What are you talking about?" Well, right. then we actually pin them down, and the medication's inadequately adjusted. I mean, a very high percentage of the time. Now, of course, the people that are seeing me are dissatisfied with their care. A lot of people do this right. I'm not running down my medical colleagues, but where we're getting it wrong is the problem. And so, so it's duration not the medication. Effect, I beg your it's, pardon? It's not, the, it's not the medication. It's the um, the way it's being dosed. Yes, yeah, the process. So, you know, give us an example. Um, and, of course, obviously, listeners, if you if you have a child on medication, do not change anything. Speak with your um, physician. But, um, you know, what type of adjustments do you, have you seen that are working where, you know, a drug that may be abandoned maybe could have worked if it was dosed differently? Well, let me, let me jump back one large step before we get into that part of it because this step is a really important step. And I take it with every person before I ever get down to talking with them uh, about medications. And that is, what what is their metabolic uh, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What characteristics do they have of their meta- metabolic burn rate? Do they uh, burn medications slowly or do they burn medications fast? If they've had medications before frequently, the parents will know that. A key thing that that I ask, one of my favorite questions is, how many times a day does the person go number two? Why? Because if they have a slow or a fast bowel transit time, and this is going to sound totally ridiculous, but it's so useful, it's unbelievable. And I'm going to sound like Dr. Oz, but I'm happy to say I thought of it before he was talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love the guy. He's right on it. Thank you, Dr. Oz, for bringing this to our attention because – Number two is a big deal. And what happens is not commonly appreciated is the fact that if that person has a uh, change in their transit time, which is the the time it takes for food to go from the mouth to the south, if they have a problem with their transit time, very likely they're going to have a problem with the way they metabolize medication. You know, it's amazing, amazing to me to think that Thousands and thousands of human beings across the United States are being treated with medication without thinking about the fact that the medication has to pass through the body to get to the mind. It's amazing. And so there are no questions asked about the body. It's like they're going to make an assumption, a faulty assumption, that I'm going to give this medication. It's going to go to the synapses in the brain from here to there. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 doesn't work right. that way. Right. And, and you so know, what happens, we ask about number two and we give them rates of metabolism. Then we go into what's going to happen with the medication because if that person is going too fast or too slow, I didn't mention the rate. I've got a, a thing on my website um, called Transit Time, a, a transit time download, which goes into it in some detail. It's on one page. But it's really 18 to 24 hours is the time that it should take for a half a can of corn for, to go from the mouth to the south. And why am I getting into that? Because I think everybody, this should be something that everybody's talking about on a regular basis. Right. I mean, it's sort of right. like basic medicine. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not ridiculous at all. It's, it's sort of, it should be commonplace every single med check. And you know who's a big a community that has a huge problem with this is the autism community. Absolutely, special needs I mean, children. Right? Absolutely, and they're on a lot of medications, and that you know they're not regular, and you know they need to know that. I mean, you know, back in the day, there was what I thought, you know, my opinion. I'm not a doctor; I've just been there, but. Um, they got it wrong, wrong, wrong. When back 15 years ago, they used to say children metabolize faster, so they need a higher dose. That is so wrong. So wrong. Absolutely. In fact, most of those kids micro responders, where they needed a microscopic dose, and it was very effective. Absolutely. Right. I mean, vulnerable children, special needs children, doesn't matter whether they got brain injury, autism, Asperger's, or constipation. They don't have to have autism, Asperger's, brain injury. They can just have constipation alone. That person is, in a way, a special needs child, from the point of view that they will not be fixable 
with a standard dose of almost any medication. And if you don't get it wow. trimmed down and get it low and slow, that person's going to be untreatable. And they could be untreatable their entire childhood. And if they're untreatable in their childhood, guess what's going to happen in their young adulthood? Oh, I know. <laughs> it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Right. So basically, we, the children, you have to get their bowel functions um, regulated for the medications to work. That's something that, you know, I never thought of. And um, I think that's, that's huge for, for my listeners. It's huge, um, and it's easy. You know, it's not complicated. Now, if it's complicated, then there are other things going on. I mean, there are certain things you can do that you really, I think, increasingly we as medical professionals need to consider doing routinely when we're having an overt bowel problem. We need to look at, I'm going to throw this word out for you because it's just kind of fun, it sounds like a dance step, psychoneuroimmunology, okay? Mm-hmm. Basically what's going on is the immune system compromises the nervous system which then compromises the psychiatric system. So neurotransmitters get all imbalanced, unbalanced, whatever, with the fact that there's a significant immune system dysregulation, and it's all measurable. It's all data-driven. I don't do any of the stuff that I'm talking to you about without measuring. We don't throw any meds, any supplements at anybody. We don't say, hey, you know, it sounds like constipation, try this. We... Or if the, if the person's got a significant uh, either IBS on constipation or, di- or diarrhea, we're going to measure it and find out what's causing it. And if they find out, and then so often we do find out what's causing it, and then we have to actually change the diet, do very specific things. And by the way, since we're on this, and I know you have a special needs program here, one of the things that I'm uh, I really find a lot of problem with in my office is <clears throat> the whole idea of an elimination diet. What what I see in my office is elimination diets most frequently don't work. Sometimes they do. Most frequently they don't work. Why? Very, and it's very frustrating for parents, yes. Absolutely. Why? Well, why is it? Because we do this test all the time in our office. Well, why does it not work? Because when we see somebody that's got an immune system dysregulation and we test them, uh, no secrets here. We test for IgG. We do qualitative IgG, not mm-hmm. quantitative. So many people do quantitative and make a judgment on that, which is, again, a total waste of time. It's a total uh, amorphous, um, non-target. So if you do qualitative and you get the specific foods involved, we see frequently, I call it the New, the New Jersey trifecta is what I call it, in, in, in my office. By far, and I'm not making, again, as you mentioned a moment ago, not making a recommendation to your listeners, but in my office we see number one, two, and three, which is the trifecta. They come in in this order, milk, eggs, and wheat in terms of priorities. And so much conversation is going on about wheat right now, and so often eggs are completely overlooked. So if you had a person and did an elimination diet and took them off of wheat and they're eating eggs every day and drinking a glass of milk, Guess what? You're going to have a a non-improvement, and you have to get them all three right. If if they just have those three, and many of them have eight or ten. Right. So, um, you know, I want to move on because we have we only have uh, about see 15 minutes left. I, okay. I do want you know it's funny that you mentioned it because I thought I was the only nut in the world that sought out the best of the best, and I found the best neuropsych immunologist. I just saw him last week with my daughter. It is so crucial for parents to, you know, do not disregard the endocrine system and the immune system. It's a cycle, you know. Um, You you can't dismiss one without the other. But we do have a a little bit nervous audience. Um, You had mentioned before a buildup of Prozac stays in the fatty tissue of the brain. So um, parents are asking, do these, how long do these drugs stay in the brain? Well, let's Let's really stick with it. The Prozac is the only one that really hangs around for a long time. Right. Uh, and, and that one, a person can become what I call Prozac stupid. In, uh, usually it occurs in the range of three to six months. It doesn't usually occur in a month or two. If it's in a couple of weeks or a month, it's frequently based on the fact that they have ADD and the Prozac or the antidepressant, whatever the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor is, has aggravated and lowered the uh, the dopamine function, and the person has kind of a stupid reaction because they just have so much. They're they're kind of mind numb. But if they are accumulating Prozac and it goes on over a period of time, 
it usually occurs down the road, and it's all reversible. I can't tell you the number of people I've seen on Prozac who've been on for years, and they're like, I don't know what it is. I just can't think right anymore. You know, and that's it could be a menopausal That's why they were so happy because they couldn't even think straight. But, I mean, yeah. Prozac, a lot of kids um, are taking Prozac, and they're doing well with it, you know, as they do with other medications. But um, I wanted to talk about the um, the reason that the ADHD medications seem to not work for some kids. Now, we, we talked about the dosing. We talked about the elimination. But one of the problems is that a lot of these kids, when they go on the stimulants, or even the non-stimulants, the Stratera in particular, I hear it all the time, and I, I don't know this from first information, but um, right after they start taking it come the rages, the outbursts. Um, they're immediately considered now as bipolar. Um, you know, so what is going on with these I'm children? That that, and a lot of the doctors that come on tell me, no, that doesn't happen. But I'm telling you no, just because it happens I'm all telling the from time. the parents, I it totally happens all the time. With anybody that says it doesn't happen, it right. happens all the time. I mean, so what's how do, what's going on with that, and what well, should parents the do? The other side of the seesaw is this: if you have a person who has a depressive picture that's not understood, and I break depression down into into three subsets. One I call the Clint Eastwood depression. The other one I call the basically whiny fussy depression, where you feel the affect, and the other one I call the political depression. And I don't want to spend all that time on it right here, but the bottom line is if a person's depressed and they can have a very much of a Clint Eastwood kind of semi-oppositional defiant attitude, give them a stimulant medication because the ADD is recognized. Well, it can actually downregulate the serotonin just as a, as a serotonin downregulated the dopamine. So then what happens is they have an, a complete I-don't-care attitude when the stimulant wears off in the afternoon. So the stimulant may work till 1 or 2 o'clock. That's what the duration of effectiveness will tell you. So if somebody comes in with a big mood disorder, quote-unquote mood disorder, my first question when I heard you, even when you say it, I'm just automatic, when in the day did it occur? When did it occur? I mean, time is something we have to introduce in all these medications. If it happened late in the afternoon but they really did well at school, well, very likely they had what I call the Wiley Coyote effect. You know, the roadrunner took a hard right. Wiley went down into the canyon and hit the hit the deck because the uh, dopamine downregulated the serotonin significantly. And you could say, yes, the medication caused the problem, but it caused the problem by aggravating a pre-existing problem which was not recognized because the depression was not an affective depression. It was more of a cognitive depression, as Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino, for example. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we spoke before... <clears throat> Excuse me about um, you know having giving serotonin, serotonin giving um, an antidepressant, and um, having the OCD tendencies um, in in the subgroup in that one thinking 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 subgroup. Um, now, do you think that there are maybe children that are misdiagnosed with OCD or anxiety disorder, and it's really the subgroup of ADHD? And in that case, would um, maybe a stimulant help them more than an antidepressant? No, oh, absolutely. I mean that's really, even if they even if they the presented most with depression thing I see in my office. That is really? without a doubt the most frequent thing I see in my office. And okay. but the issue is because they if they're more the more excessively worried they are, the more when there when there's a tone of affect that starts to come into it and a tone of disorganization. Uh I in the back of my mind and the and the and the team that works with me, we think of organicity causing that tone. We're, we're looking at what other metabolic uh, systems and dysregulations are at play. So we don't just say, okay, well, we don't think just diagnostically. We start thinking functionally, and as the, as the uh, meter starts to go up on the intensity, we're getting much more into the biologic side of it. And, yeah, the bottom line, to answer your question very simply, very frequently is ADD. But, again, I mean, you have to examine the child to make the, make the assessment. Right. Now, uh, we, we, parents have tried a lot of medications. For some children, medications don't work. So um, yeah, I know that you're writing another book now um, about, you know, basically what to do when you've tried everything and nothing's working. You mentioned before that you use supplements in your practice and other therapies. So can you give us, you know, some 
some tips on other options for parents that are struggling? Well, this is this is the book that is going to be so much fun because I wrote the first book to say, hey, we've got a problem. I mean, if you look at ADHD medication rules, paying attention to the meds for paying attention, well, I'm, all it's saying is, hey, public, hey, guys, we've got a problem. And by the way, if you tell your doctors it's going to be a good deal because maybe we can all grow from this experience. I'm into teamwork, not into being... Uh, labeling other people or calling people names. But the next book is how do we use the available evidence effectively in the office. And there's a big debate going on in the country right now. I remember when I started working with Eamon back in 2003, you know, the the tremendous stink about uh, spec scans. You know, they're just snake oil, and I, I I won't name any names, but the bottom line is people are still that way. They think it's heresy and a joke and doesn't make any sense. It's just not reading the literature. So one of the things that's like that now is a very controversial point, which uh, people say, yeah, it's whatever, snake oil or uh, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, is a neurotransmitter testing with urine. Now, you can actually have an individual urinate in a cup and send it off to a laboratory and understand right. what they're uh, collection of neurotransmitters are doing in their body and and somewhat representative of the brain. That's why it's a biomarker. It's like cholesterol. It's like. And where would a parent get this test done? Well, neuroscience is the. If they go to my website and just uh, they can uh, dial it in there. I've got a neuroscience page and it's got all this information okay. there, and they can get it from any neuroscience provider. I mean, it's. Okay. Because I mean, it's important. It really is nice to have the data before you, you know, start picking medications. Now, the different subgroups that you spoke about—they're very different. I mean, they present differently. Yes, they do. Do different medications, even in the same class, let's say a stimulant medication or a non-stimulant ADHD medication, are there any that that work better for different subgroups? That's a really good question, and and no, unfortunately, we're not there yet. Well, we can predict. If we do neurotransmitter testing, that some, like take, take Intuniv, for example. I've written a lot about Intuniv. I think Intuniv is an excellent product. It's one of those drugs that's really right there for the refractory folks that just kind of bounced off the walls with the dopamine, dopaminergic. Huh, okay. uh, and Intuniv works very well, but some kids get completely uh, deteriorated on Intuniv. Well, Intuniv is actually a glutamate neurotransmitter facilitator, okay? It it actually facilitates uh, in a secondary way, but it does facilitate glutamate neurotransmission. So it's a bunch of words, but all it's doing is bringing an, a, an excitatory neurotransmitter up to a level, and some of these kids actually have an abundance of glutamate already on board. So if you give them Intuniv, they bounce right. completely off the wall, and you would think, hey, this is the one that's really made for Intuna because they have that oppositional defiant disorder. They were angry. They seem to be reacting. Now, a lot of people do very, very well with Intuna, but what I'm saying is the more we know about the data, the more predictable will be the outcomes with the specific medication in question. Well, you know, I'd want to just mention the name of your book and your website because we have a few minutes left. And if you have a few minutes, I'd like to take one or two callers. Sure, sure. Um, the name of the book is ADHD Medication Rules. You can get it on Amazon. You can download it to your Kindle. Um, the website, your website is, where do I have it right here? www.corepsychblog. Yeah, it's that spelling. I, I actually have another one, Core Brain, but Core Psych is P-S-Y-C-H-blog.com. Yes, and it is fantastic. I mean, and I, I know I'm so going to be back on there and digging through for the neuroscience, too. Um, you know, I, I'd really like you to come back because one thing we didn't touch upon because I just we, I couldn't put it all in is I want to talk about the excitogens and the glutamate and how important that is. How so the, what, what these kids are eating is really important. And I'm oh, not talking about elimination diets. I'm talking about um, the sugars and the, um, the, the um, you know, fake uh, sweeteners oh, yeah. that are really oh, yeah. just destroying these kids. Um, so, you know, I would love to have you come back well, We could that. talk about adolescent women with early, early menarche because yep. they just, with the estrogens, the xenoestrogens that were taken into the diet, we see so many girls with polycystic ovarian and uh, actually fibrocystic breasts and mid-adolescents. Yep, my daughters, the- they, they have uh, the polycystic, they have the cystic breasts, they have the pituitary tumors. 
It's amazing. Yep. Yep. And, and then what and happens? You know what? People it's treat so them common with antipsychotic now. medications. I mean, that's the only. If that's the only, you know, if that's the only tool in your toolbox, then give them doggone Risperdal or whatever. And I like Risperdal. It's a nice backup medication. I'm not running it down, but why not use the proper tool for the correct target? Right. You know, that's what what saved my child's life was I finally got the fifth endocrinologist to listen to me um, and changed her life. The anxiety, the, the everything changed for her because it was, you know, based in, a, in an endocrine problem. Um, I'd like to take a caller, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Let me see. Um, area code 610, are you there? Uh, yes, hi. 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 Um, I'm Whitney Hoffman. I also run the LD podcast. I was talking with um, Dr. Russ Barkley about two weeks ago. He did something in Lancaster. And one of the things he was talking about was the emotional dysregulation with ADHD and whether or not with the DSM-5 we're going to see ADHD kind of split into two pieces because the kids with sluggish cognitive tempo seem to be responding to certain medications slightly differently than kids who have, you know, what's currently, you know, combined bind type or hyperactive subtype of ADHD, and I was wondering what you thought about that. That's a great question. First of all, I admire Dr. Barkley immensely. In fact, he is the thought leader in the world, in my opinion, with yeah. ADD. Uh, yeah, we had the honor to have him on a few weeks ago. He was he's amazing. a fantastic guy. He's so articulate. He's yeah. so smart. And I, I love his new word. I mean, I love the metacognition concept mm-hmm. because everything, in fact, the title of my book is a metacognitive uh, title. You know, where we're actually thinking about thinking instead of not thinking about thinking. But uh, anyway, to answer your question, that hasn't been my experience in the office because I'm not really uh, deriving my medication targets based on DSM-4 uh, labels. So what, whether a person's hyperactive or inattentive, I, I don't really even think that way. I, I think what is my target and I'm, I'm with him, and he has a good colleague, Mary Salanto, who's written a definitive book on ADHD uh, stimulant medications. And Mary Salanto would be a great person to get on. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't heard her speak, per se, but I know her book is excellent. And what she did a really yes, good job several years ago of comparing methylphenidate products with amphetamine products. And I'm going to use an amphetamine product first line on any of these. But what I'm going to do in my way of getting around sensitivity, I think what Dr. Barkley is picking up, which is not in the literature, is the abundance of metabolic disarray going on out there and causing unpredictable results and trying to form some conclusions from that. And I'm not saying anything negative about him. I'm just saying this is what I think is going on because nobody seems to be paying attention to that, to that variable. So if I ask the variables quickly and and carefully on the front end, I'm going to start any medication at a microdose all the time. So I've got a water titration strategy for Vyvanse, and I like amphetamines as a first line because they are more efficacious. But, yes, people do fail them for genetic reasons, which I won't take the time to discuss right now, but they're specific liver pathways that – obviate the proper metabolism of uh, amphetamines uh, present in some people. So there are a lot of different variables that affect it, but I don't think, my own opinion, is that I'm not persuaded that hyperactive, inattentive, and that that whole formulation uh, has much of a difference. My differences are whether a person is uh, suffering from comorbid metabolic issues, uh, eating breakfast, that sort of thing. Thank you for calling. I appreciate you calling in. Oh, thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you, ma'am. You know, one of the things that you know I always used to do with uh, my child was that you know I, I never would would start a long acting or an extended release. Um, you know, whatever the dose was, I gave a quarter, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always asked for the pharmacist to, to, to write a prescription for the pharmacist pharmacist for at least one or two pills of short acting, because yeah. I mean, you know, parents know when you have a bad reaction, it is horrible. Better to have a bad reaction for six hours than twenty four. Um, so you know, what do you think of the um, the upcoming DSM? I know that they're they're thinking of adding the TDD, the temper dysphoric dysregu- uh, disorder. I, I think it's uh, some of the same old, same old. I mean, I I have absolutely no hope whatsoever. Basically, the same people are doing the same kind of descriptive uh, 
So what happens is my I wrote a blog post about probably six or eight months ago, and I said if you think the DSM-4 uh, was a problem and you have uh, you think the DSM-5 is going to be the new Bible, let me forewarn you, you will not be saved. Right. No, it, it seems like it's going to be worse. old superficial yeah. diagnostic criteria, and they're just redefining it. It's sort of like bipolar 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, right. 7, 8. We're still trying to look at they're patterns. They're still not looking, right. We're not they, looking at the still underlying not looking at dimensions. Yeah. It's still not dimensional. No, yeah. So and I, until I, they I, figure it out, nobody. our kids are just going to suffer. That's exactly right. And, I, and the adults, too. We see so many right. people who have been treated since childhood and just been really mistreated based on the available science. Yeah, they should just scrap it put, or postpone it, you know, postpone the release of it because, um, you know, if, if 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 parents are going to, a lot of parents, you know this, especially when, they're, when it's their first child, first diagnosis, they cling to those labels, and it's just such oh, a mistake. Do? Yeah, it's such a mistake. I cannot thank you enough for joining us. And thank I cannot you so thank much you for having for what me. You I do. really appreciate it. It's wonderful talking with you. Really appreciate your audience coming out tonight, and I look forward to maybe doing it again sometime. Oh, well, we'd love to have you back. We'll we'll talk during the week. Thank you for joining us. I really Thank appreciate it. Thank you, Marianne. Have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. As we end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on the Coffee Clutch. And please, check out the website. Check out his book. It is incredible. The New ADHD Med Rules. Have a great night, everyone.